Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, September 27th, 2021. My name's Show Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, uh, we're going to go and have a conversation, as we so often do. We are going to discuss some of the pressing issues in our world, and we're going to draw information from a number of different sources, and we're going to try to engage with this information in good faith, no matter where it comes from. Hopefully, along this road, we will keep ourselves and our loyal listeners adequately informed. Yeah, you know, we, we the information, you know, if we saw it as some graffiti in a bathroom stall, we take that. It's information. <laughs> it's data. Uh, datum. But, um, yeah, you know, we realize that we aren't perfect. We don't know everything. We aren't the only viewpoint that matters. You know, other people can look at the same information and come to different conclusions as us. I mean, God forbid us being up on an ivory tower. That ain't us. Never. So, never. No, we ain't looking down on the people. We are the people. So, Evan. Yes, Joe. To Joe, today we're going to talk about a case that has been gripping the nation and try to find out what is really going on here in terms of the media and its response to this case. The case can, that I'm referring to. Yeah, can I what? say something real quick? Yes. It, it, it just feels refreshing that like a, like while this story in of itself is just kind of, you know, you know it's not good. It's kind of refreshing that like a non-politics horribleness story is the main talk of the nation for yeah, yeah, half there a you second. Go. You know, we, something else can enter the zeitgeist. There is a villain who doesn't live in Washington. Crazy, crazy. Who um, is in orange? <laughs> <laughs> you you, yeah. you sure did zing Trump. That one's really going to yeah. hurt him. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, I got him. Anyway. So, yeah, back to serious. We're talking about the murder of Gabby Petito. And I want to go through the backstory of the case so that everyone is caught up on what's going on. Then look at sort of some of the media response to it. So, to clarify, um, Gabby is not the villain. She is the victim. Um, She's also not orange. So, in July, Gabby... And her her fiance Brian Laundrie went on a road trip in a van that they were going to document and put on YouTube, sort of like ah ha ha, cute, attractive young couple is going and seeing all these things. You know, it's going to be fun. But eventually, it becomes kind of clear that things are are not going so well on this road trip. So on August twelfth, the couple is stopped in Utah for having an altercation while driving on the road. Um, This is the dash cam footage that has been circulating on media. Um, Gabby is in tears. She is explaining that she and Brian have been fighting for a prolonged period of time. There are reports that she was, you know, trying to grab at the steering wheel while he's driving. She confesses to the officer that there was a period of time where he locked her out of the van and wouldn't let her back in. So things are not doing well, but the officers categorize it as a mental health episode and not a domestic issue. And so nothing really comes of it. Mm -hmm. 
so by the end of August, August 25th is the last time that Gabby Petito is heard from on social media, and August 30th is the last time that she is heard from through text on her phone. On September 1st, Brian Laundrie returns to his home in Florida without Gabby, and will not explain why, doesn't tell anyone where she has gone. Um, Gabby's family back home are wondering where she's going. Brian and his family will not talk to them, won't say anything. And pretty shortly thereafter, Brian himself goes missing. And it seems pretty clear to most observers that something bad has happened to Gabby and Brian is now trying to evade whatever consequences are going to come from that but nonetheless brian's family files a missing persons report for him in an attempt to claim that they don't know his whereabouts that you know they're concerned about him but on september 19th a body is found and two days later identified as the body of gabby petito on the september 23rd just this past week a a warrant was issued for Brian Laundrie's arrest, and he remains at large. So it seems pretty clear, a case of, of a man murdering his domestic partner and fleeing to evade capture, and it's a tragedy, don't get me wrong. It's it's absolutely awful that stuff like this happens. It sucks that there are, are people like Brian Laundrie in the world, but I'm wondering to what extent it is indicative of any larger trends to what extent that it is a case that everyone needs to be aware of the moment by moment details of what what i'm wondering is even though this is a tragic case why is it national news so joe let's let's get you looped in here are there any other details that you're familiar with anything on the case that you think is worth mentioning or any of that uh classic commentary um, up until this point, not a whole lot. Um, you were more familiar with the case than I was, even though I did a little brush up. But Lindsay um, gave me uh, a full rundown last night. Uh-huh. So I I do have to think that um, like this is kind of outside of the case. This is more in the media criticism conversation. But part of what they were doing was um you know, building a social media following. And so there were people aware of these people other than just their, you know, relatives and friends and family and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that maybe helped project things, but, but geez, going, going out and doing the van life with a partner. I mean, that's, that's a really big commitment. Like it's doing a road trip, but like jacked up a few extra times. Yeah. No escape. Yeah. Like you're, you're actively together and there are a set of small, minute problems that you have to navigate every day that are just tough. Um, so like, I mean, what is it they say about a relationship? If you really want to test how good you are together, go on a road trip together. I mean, they, I guess they really didn't get along together to put it as small as possible. Yeah. The uh, weakest words as possible in in the, I I expressed this in the strongest possible terms, Joe, this was a bad thing that happened. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, No. Um, (laughs) 
so yeah, clearly it, it it did not go well for them. But yeah, the, the the media attention is what has really been interesting to me about this case because, as you mentioned, they do have a pretty significant social media media following. They were on this road trip in order to document it for their YouTube channel. I know that there has also been a huge amount of posts on TikTok that have been surrounding this case. In fact. TikToks with uh, the, the, you know, the Gabby Petito marker. I'm not on TikTok. I don't understand all the, the nomenclature. Lindsay's going to yell at me about this later. I'm pretty um, sure it's still a still hashtag. hashtag. Okay. So the, you know, ha- yeah. Gabby Petito hashtag. There's been over a billion views on these TikToks. Like this is just massively popular. And, and, and that sounds a little crass to say that this murder case has been popular, but that, that is what it has. It's, it's become a form of content that is being consumed as entertainment by people. But but yeah. but beyond the entertainment aspect, it has crossed over into sort of the actual news sphere, which I guess you could argue is also infotainment in and of itself. Uh, maybe we can go down that road later. But, you know, this is the type of story that has been leading the morning news broadcasts before I've been out the door on my way to work this past week we've been given these updates and up to the minute information on it that that just seems maybe a little incongruous with the actual social importance of this story florida governor Mm -hmm. ron desantis called for a stricter investigation of what's going on um it's been covered on podcasts notably crime junkie one of the most popular true true crime podcasts what's up I, I can't wait for the New York Times op-ed about how um, that, you know, Ron DeSantis calling for a stricter uh, investigation into this case is the moment he became the GOP nominee. You know, <laughs> like they, they've just been really stroking him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, his, his, oh, yeah. his, his numbers look good right now. Um, anyway. Um, it, this this has gotten so so big and so crazy, Joe. That the dog, the bounty hunter, is personally searching for Brian Laundry. I know, right? Dog, the bounty hunter. He's on his honeymoon right now, and he has cut his honeymoon short to go fucking. He knocked on the door of Brian Laundry's parents, and he is like hunting him down because he is so personally invested oh in this case. Oh my god, that yeah. is a character I forgot existed. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's back now. Man, um, I can't believe there is an entire tele. Well, there were way more than just his show about like, go, you know, being bounty hunters, you know, with a you know reality TV crew. But man, that was just a wild time. Yeah, <laughs> that he was even a character. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think though, so so what do we have? We have a heinous crime. We have a, a a story that's blowing up that has dubious informational value to the public. But then we also have this very real phenomenon where all of the attention that has been brought to this case is allowing for it to move pretty quickly. The lead that led to the discovery of the body was by someone who was actually recording their own YouTube series about being at this certain park or campground. And because they 
had known about the Gabby Petito case and seen the van on the news and on social media, when they were editing their own footage, they saw Brian Laundrie's van and then could tell, you know, searchers where to look based on on that evidence. And that is ultimately where her body mm-hmm. was found. So there's real benefits to the family of Gabby Petito as they seek justice. But it seems like the way that this extra attention and extra spotlight has been assigned has been not based, like I said, on the news value of the case, but rather on this other phenomenon where we seem to be, as a nation, really interested in violent crime that happens to conventionally attractive photogenic white women. And those are the stories that get picked up, and those are the stories that get media attention. Yeah. I mean, hell, I mean, you can even think about, I mean, making a murderer. Like, that's a show about the murder of a, you know, young white woman Mm -hmm. Um, and the outrage over that. And but yeah, it's it's just like a culmination of a lot of things. I mean, like you talked about true crime or you mentioned true crime and how that's like a genre of infer- you know entertainment and i mean i'm guilty here i i like true crime stuff um you know it's it's there's a lot going on it gets intricate there are different players and you know doing a deep bot dive into a crime and how it all interlocks with each other is you know interesting stuff but then you're also getting entertainment out of people's misery and, mm-hmm. and and their misfortune. I mean, one time I was being a little flip and I watched had watched whatever the latest new true crime documentary was. And I was like, yeah, it was all right. But, you know, it kind of hit all the same beats and justice in the system got a raw shake shaky witnesses before dna blah i've heard all these story beats before and it's just like it becomes a weird entertainment product when um you know and then you start judging things like an entertainment product when it's really just people's lives Mm -hmm. and you know you're not gonna zhuzh up a, a crime you know if it's boring um, yeah. You know, you're not going to be able to. Things just happen as they are. So, but yeah, it's just, it's a weird world where you can, that there is just some sort of entertainment value out of these crimes. I mean, shit. I mean, that's part of the why they put crime, you know, local arrests in the local paper. Um, you know, there's some value about it, whether it's civic or just entertainment value. Yeah, I think like a local arrest that is almost more about keeping the local community abreast of malfeasance within their community, right? Like if if your kid's but teacher got arrested for larceny, you want to know that. But yes, I, I understand your bigger point yeah. that, that there are people who just like to see, oh boy, that guy I went to high school with got another DUI. Ha ha ha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they definitely use it like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like the inner, you know, the sleuthing part of it where yeah, I th- yeah. There there's been a like I've watched a good number of true crime documentaries where 
um, breakthroughs in the case or or the story is mainly told by non cops, non detectives who end up sleuthing pretty hard and trying to put the dots together themselves in order to figure it out. And there, it seems like this is something this is some trait that is um, shared among a wide group of people who are, you know, a significant amount of people um, that, you know, when they something like this happens and there isn't an answer, they have to go start sleuthing on their own through whatever means they can. I mean, I remember watching The Keepers on Netflix. That was mainly told through the, you know, through the eyes of people who um, had hardcore sleuth this, you know, this murder after it had been done. I mean, there are others and it's just at some level, you got to respect people for doing sleuthing, trying to get to the answer and there can be a civic value to it. But when it's just kind of hordes of people on the internet dogpiling, that's also not great. Yeah. Um, because there have been situations in the past where um, because it's just people on the internet, they get it wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. d- that's not to say law enforcement doesn't get it wrong either, but, you know, they have a few more checks and balances, not just wild conjecture and then people sending death threats. Yeah. Like I remember after the Boston bombing, you know, uh, that was like an instance where a whole bunch of people on Reddit started like looking at security cameras and all this other stuff. And they thought they had got their guy figured out who did it. And it was not the guy who did it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, ended up harassing this person a whole lot. So it's just interesting the sleuth dumb that exists out there and how it can be both of value, but then also a hindrance. Absolutely. And I think where it really holds the most value is when you can get concrete information to the appropriate authorities, when you can sort of have people who are on the lookout for stuff like the van, and then they can accidentally be editing their footage and and send it on away but that never would have happened if the case hadn't gotten so much national attention so there there is definitely an upside to it but where i want to pivot to now is about how the advantage that is given to high profile cases is not distributed equally and there, mm-hmm. there's a case of someone really kind of close to our own home community in central illinois a, a young man named jelani day who was a master's student at illinois state who went missing and was sort of just you know it's a mysterious case but you know he is a, a young black man and and he did not get at least initially because there's another point that i want to make here but at least initially it didn't get any sort of the same internet or national recognition as the gabby petito case did despite having Mm -hmm. what i would reason is about the same news value and so this had real implications you know there wasn't pressure on people to try to solve his crime and respond to his family so whereas gabby petito's body was identified within three days jelani's body was eventually found but it took two weeks 
for the identification process because there was no external pressure. That was two weeks that his family had to sit in agony, not knowing, not getting that closure that their son and brother was dead, was actually gone. Mm-hmm. And so it, it it definitely speaks, I think, very negatively to this sort of confluence of news and entertainment and race and justice that we do have a, a scenario where to get that big national following, you have to be appealing enough to a mainstream audience in your death, in your murder. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's 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 a little bit ghoulish to think about Oh wow, you know, if 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 I get murdered, am I going to be the right demographic for CBS to put this on on the morning news? Mhm. But I I that is certainly true. But then again, there are tons of missing people every year. Exactly. That's a great hor- point. Yeah. It's horrible that it happens. But and and you know, we there's so much to unpack because like there are so many missing people every year and, you know, news organizations will do what they can. I mean, I see Facebook posts all the time that, you know, this person's missing. If you see them, give us a shout. Um, or you Amber know, alerts local... sent right to your phone. Yeah. yeah. Or on local news, they'll say this person's missing in this area, you know, take a look. Um, you know, if you see anything, so there is definitely an apparatus out there to try and find missing people. But once we get crossover into what is the news, then we get into this weird space where we definitely have this idealized version of the news. And I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I mean, I have read enough stuff from journalists and kind of the inside baseball of it all. And that really, no matter what, news is kind of whatever people are wanting to watch. Like it's bringing you current events that are happening, but it's also current events that people want to hear about. And that goes especially for like morning news shows and um, kind of the primetime cable stuff. They're kind of trying to, you know, they're a business, they're trying to sell ads and they're trying to bring you current events. Like that's the, the, you know, the dilemma, the trilemma, what have you. And they're trying to hit all of those. And basically, if they can find some sort of news story that has, for whatever reason, people are more gravitating towards, they'll cover that instead of other things. And I also think that Gabby had some things coming going along that, you know, just also helped her. Like I try, I mentioned before that, you know, she was trying to build an Instagram following and I I, I tried to look up on the internet. She has like 1.2 million followers now, which is not how many she had before mm-hmm. her murder. She had something more like 11,000. But 
11,000 is not insignificant. It's a hell of a lot more than Joe and I have. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Listeners, you are not part of 11,000 people. I'm just going to, you know, uh, say that. Um, So that's a pretty sizable following. And part of creating that following was um, visual content. Um, and, And what really helps with news producers is, especially TV news producers, is if they have extra visual content that they can use to splice in with their newscasts. So if they can ever find a good video of the person or good photo, you know, a wide selection of photos, so it's not just posting the same video or same picture over and over again, they can somewhat gravitate towards that because it's just more appealing in the medium that is television. Mm-hmm. So I think there were, but you know, missing white women is definitely a phenomenon. But then again, there are so many missing people that like, I just can't help but feel that being able to garner national attention is like, an above average thing where just most people are just, you know, they, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. It's, it's unfortunate that it's not newsworthy for every missing person to be given this level of treatment, but just due to biases that people have, they just gravitate more towards someone like Gabby and caring more about it. Yeah. So I guess what, what it really calls into question for me is like, you know, what, what is our role of the news? Right. And I think you're absolutely right that in practice it is to get people to watch it, to generate ad revenue for the people who own the news. But I mean, we do this too. I mean, to a much lesser extent, we definitely try. And, you know, some part of it is what we want to talk about and on our own, you know, ideas and such. But then also another part of it is trying to figure out what other people want to listen to, you know, what our listeners want to listen to. So that affects things in some ways. Yeah, that's true. But we, we haven't really done too much with monetization. So I, I feel like actually you and I, do a pretty good job of having pretty strong editorial control over what we actually want to talk about. Um, but then, of course, you know, we don't always get the, the listener numbers that we want. Right. Um, so it, it, it is a, a little bit tough. And, and I'm sure that there's a part of me that's just, you know, seen the newsroom and is like, yeah, Aaron Sorkin's right. The news should be Walter Cronkite, you know, that kind of guy. Uh-huh. Um but it still feels to me like the the current system is just a little bit out of balance, especially when the stakes are, you know, bringing people to justice, giving some sort of closure for families after horrific crimes have happened to their loved ones. Although I would be remiss if I didn't introduce this last idea, which I've had that's, that's a little bit more contrarian. Ooh. So the, the the comparison to Jelani Day is not something that I have specifically made 
in and of myself to contrast. This is sort of becoming like a a case study in differential media representation. But because there is everyone now pointing out, hey, what about Jelani Day? What about Jelani Day? What about Jelani Day? He is starting to get his story covered on the news. And he is now having his case elevated in the national profile. And so I guess what it makes me think of is that if if, if nobody cared before, but then all of a sudden we had this big groundswell of people now elevating that story in you know sort of to contrast with the media representation of the gabby petito story you know how how valid is some of the criticism when everyone Mm -hmm. is now rushing to promote this this other story is it fair now that jelani day gets his case elevated but you know like you said there are a lot of missing people out there what what about their stories um and also if if everyone could so easily sort of glom on to the Jelani Day story, that that information was accessible, why? What, what was stopping it? What was that barrier? If, if these news organizations are so worried about equity, why are they running a story about inequity when they could just be running stories from the get-go that promote equity? I know, I know that's a ton. This is probably yeah. my least developed thought of this, but I, it's something that I wanted to bring up. So a, a, any well, of that, take a cut at it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of when George Floyd was murdered and so many people in the discourse or there were so many people out there that were like, what about Breonna Taylor? What about Breonna Taylor? When are we going to get justice for Brianna Tara, this this um, black woman who was shot in her own home due to police executing a warrant on the wrong address? And and through the lens of the George Floyd murder and national exposure and fervor for. Um, trying to correct injustices of that type, there was a lot of motion on the Breonna Taylor case. Eventually, I'm going to guess because of um, big, uh, broad recognition due to the fact of, you know, the George Floyd murder creating kind of a a um, a slipstream for it to, you know, make its way into getting national attention. And it's almost like the the backlash to a or a criticism of a certain thing being covered can result in the coverage of something else. It it is very much almost like a backlash to the backlash event, right? Like we have this, this event and then there's the backlash where it's like, why, why didn't we cover this other thing? And then there's the backlash to the backlash where it's like, well, in saying, why don't we cover this other thing? Aren't we really covering that other thing? And and I'm glad you bring up George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, because these are cases where individual deaths have warranted huge amounts of media attention because they're telling a broader story about our country. They're telling a story about institutional violence and institutional injustice as filtered through the lens of race. 
But with these sort of just missing person cases, like I said, I don't want to downplay the tragedy at all. Undeniably tragic. But there's not that larger context. There's not that larger narrative, at least not not in the coverage that I have seen up till mm-hmm. now. Like, I feel like with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, like he said, we those were elevated because there was a um, a conversation about race and systemic institutions that people felt like we were needing to have and needing to litigate and for a more just you know way forward and you know a conversation that hadn't been happening before and because through that you know they were able to better have that and you know try and affect things whereas I mean, you can go down like a um, with Gabby, you could go down like a feminist critique where maybe, you know, uh, this Brian guy had, you know, uh, misogynist, chauvinist thoughts or, you know, what have you. But like there isn't a larger conversation, at -hmm. least at the onset to be had here. It's it's a missing person. And again, not to downplay, but there are so many missing people and it it's not like it's not like our government is making them disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and like you said, j- maybe there is some sort of bigger systemic thing going on here, but that's not what we're getting. We're getting just but, the, the lurid details and the infotainment of it all. And that's that's what's bugging me. But but keep going, right. please. Like, like, you know, I can't eat, you know, I, I the other guy, I, I don't I'm not as familiar with it. I mean, I heard the name, too, when I was doing my research, but didn't. You know, but it was only brought up in the what about this guy, you know, and it, it wasn't part of a bigger conversation. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, every once in a while, a like, you know, on the news, they'll show like a really bad car accident or something like that. And there's tons of car accidents that happen, but mm-hmm. like, you know, some, you know, just get news play because some producer saw it and saw some value in it and ran with it. And, you know, sometimes there just isn't a bigger conversation to be had. Um, but everyone but should watch see- Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler does a great job kind of discussing the if it bleeds, it leads philosophy and watch Nightcrawler. Yeah, good movie. Um, But yeah, you know, it's like this. I can see the case for the people just covering it straight. I can see the case for the backlash. And I can see the case for the backlash to the backlash. Like, I don't know. It's just kind of a thing that happens it's bad there are other bad things out in the world that should also get the same attention but at the same time there's only so much attention and it's hard to pay attention to all the bad things like i'm sure there are some bombings going on in some remote part of the world that are just horrific and we know nothing about them Mm -hmm. and the human toll is way more than what happened in the 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 Gabby Peptio, you know, encounter like so it's, you know, with this stuff there, 
is always with with the news there are so many different ways you can go about it and once you kind of realize that the news is kind of current events filtered through what people want to see then it makes a little bit more sense doesn't mean you can't call for greater um you know uh, equity or or you know different things being covered or that kind of stuff but um you know i i don't know how much is like of this is manufactured versus mm-hmm. just people kind of freewheeling and catching a golden goose um occasionally that's ratings mm-hmm. yeah i mean that that's kind of the biggest takeaway for me is that i of course you know you feel horrible that someone has lost their life that's something we've we've said on this this podcast plenty of times like any time that that a fellow human is snuffed out of this world that is just an incalculable loss any anybody who loses their life prematurely you know not due to natural causes is a death that needs to be examined and could theoretically be prevented exactly and you know to me that's that's like a big part of my life philosophy is that any premature death is something serious and we should look at it but then again there are so many premature deaths yeah and 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 i know that i know that you're totally on board with that and the 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 thing to me though is that yes there's such a high volume of them the way in which i've learned about this and the way that this has become ubiquitous makes me uncomfortable about several things going on in the landscape of news media and that's what i hope that's what i hope i I got into a little bit today and we hope that you got into it today yeah hopefully you got in your car got got to work safely and you you listened to this little conversation but it's not done yet boom 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 So, Joe, what's our next topic? All right. So, for the back half of this episode, we actually have two topics. What? Um, that, yeah, I know, that are kind of hopping in right now. And I feel like it would be of a service to you guys to get a little bit of the lowdown because these things can kind of be complicated. So, Evan, I'm going to kick it to you. What should we do first? Uh, China real estate or mint the coin? Let's do um, China real estate. Okay, that's good. Um, that's what I was leaning for towards anyway. Um, Synergy right here, so, folks. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you may have heard in the news recently something about a Chinese real estate firm, and they may be going under. Um, and you know, most likely you haven't heard much else and what it's about. Um, and what are the implications and all that kind of stuff? I mean, maybe you saw a talking head on cable news, but I mean, I'm someone in the know and I, you know, even trying to find coverage of this is hard. It's hard to, it's hard to find a lot of good English language coverage of China. Um, because I don't know, it's just like so big and so much going on and the analysis, you know, the people who care more about it are often antagonistic towards China. So that's not (laughs) always like the most clear thing, but so what's going on, what's going on and, and how may this affect you eventually? 
So, so there's this company in China called Evergrande. Evergrande is, if not the biggest, damn near the biggest real estate firm in China and maybe even the world. They control massive, massive swaths of the Chinese real estate market. And I don't have an exact amount of units that they have in total, but I can tell you that there have been worries about the solvency of Evergrande, you know, their ability to stay in business and have money, um, because it was recently revealed that they have 90 million units unoccupied. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> 90 million units. Um, you know, China has a ton of people, but even then they have quite overshot the number of units that they've built to accommodate people in China moving to urban centers. I mean, 90 million units. I mean, that's enough units. I saw someone put a stat together that it was like all the people uh, of Canada, in you know, the UK, Germany, France, they could all get one of those units and there would still, or, or each family could get a unit. Yeah, because that, that's still the thing, be, right, is it's, it's units. So that 90 million could house, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, you could house all of those countries in those empty units. And which is just, you know, mind boggling. And you get to wondering, how does something like this happen? I mean, we talk in the United States all the time about our real estate issues, but it's normally in the opposite direction that in these Scarcity, localities, yeah. yeah, there aren't enough housing units for everybody. And, um, you know, we're not allowing enough to be built, whereas China seemingly has the opposite issue that they have you know, they have built so many units. Yeah, well, how take does that, happen? Yimbies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what? why are there so many units in China? So, China is a... It's a company with capitalist elements, but also the, the uh, central government, the Chinese government controls all finance and all the banks. And China has been on a pretty unprecedented 40-year economic growth spurt, which most countries get like recessions every five years or so. Mm -hmm. China hasn't had a recession in the last 40 years. Now, there's some controversy of whether they've cooked their books a little bit, uh, in some of their lower periods, but even in their low periods, they were growing at like three or 4%, which is like about as high as US GDP growth is, ever is these days. But most of this growth is because of catch up. This concept that, um, you know, a less developed economy can have really high growth. Um, when they're trying to catch up to the standards of a more economically prosperous nation. Mm -hmm. So 
One of the things that China did over the years to help shore up their economy to make, you know, make sure their economy kept growing was every time there was a threat of a recession or a recession booming, China would just tell the banks to lend, lend, lend money. And mostly what they lent their money to was real estate and construction. So these Chinese banks, which were still controlled by the government or extensively regulated compared to uh, U.S. companies, would just pour money into construction projects, real estate construction projects. So much so that even in this year, 30% of Chinese GDP is real estate and related industries. Um, which is just so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. had U.S. is maybe like ten percent. Uh, so they're spending so much of their money on real estate and uh, you know construction and all that stuff, and it's leading to real questions of whether Chinese real estate has been a bubble where it's been overvalued and overdeveloped. Um, And this can have real implications because um, Chinese households in the middle class, about 70% of their net worth comes from their their home that they own, from home ownership. And, you know, if it comes out that Chinese real estate is way overvalued, that just wipes out so many people's, um, you know, savings and retirements and nest eggs. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, a lot of my analysis has come from uh, an economist named Noah Smith, who has a Substack and a Bloomberg column, and and he coined that right now China has a trilemma, a you know a, like a dilemma, except there are three prongs to it. They want to keep first off, they want to keep short term economic growth high because they've. Um, They've had quite a party of 40 years of economic growth, and it would be quite a shock to the Chinese country if they were to experience a period of economic contraction. They also want to keep make sure that middle class wealth is maintained because, I mean, as we know in the United States, middle class wealth is like the backbone to a thriving economy. Middle class people are the people who um, earn relatively higher amounts of money and also still spend a relatively high amount of their money. So they're great for economies. And you can have a lot more of them than just rich people. And then also they have a third prong that they're looking out for of long term productivity growth and structural economic transformation. So you may have also heard recently that China has been going through something Xi Jinping, the president of China, has called the profound revolution, which is kind of trying to make China a more productive nation. Like the biggest thing that I remember was um, he just recently cut the number of hours of video games Chinese kids can play to three hours a week. I love it. <laughs> I unironically love it. Yeah. And 
Um, I guess Evan isn't a gamer. Uh, not looking out for gamers' rights. So <laughs> I, I'm not not buying any of this gamer girl bathwater. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So with those three prongs, each solution that you have to this kind of solves two of them, but leaves one of them hanging. So you can let Evergrande. Um, you know, they can just force the banks to lend them a bunch of money at below market value and keep this behemoth of a company going. But due to that, they um, they end up risking long term productivity growth, which they're trying to get to try and become a, you know, the superpower of the world. Um, they need to become more productive and real estate and uh, real estate. Real estate and construction aren't very productive industries. They want to get into like semiconductors and and these higher productivity um, functions, but those are hard to create and take lots of years. So, um, but even then, per- construction is more productive than um, you know keeping a giant firm afloat. But that's even less productive. Um, so they can do that, and that preserves short-term economic growth and middle-class wealth. Then there is letting Evergrande fail. And that can really, you know, it's kind of the opposite. It, it, it hurts short-term economic growth, hurt, can hurt middle-class wealth, but can start a change in Chinese economy towards more highly productive fields. Um, but it's, it's difficult. And I think, you know, now that I'm going through all this, this is way too high of a level for most things. But needless to say, Evergrande is a massive, massive firm that holds so much real estate. And China is trying to grapple with what to do about it. And it has several paths that it can go. And they're really trying to decide what the future of the Chinese economy is going to look like. They could just muddle through it. They can embrace the failure and try and, you know, shore it up. Or they can let it fail and, you know, just kind of go in a new direction after. But really, if a if we see Evergrande fail and the Chinese world sees negative economic growth. This could have impacts on other countries because, you know, economic growth is something that's generally good for everyone involved, not just the people who are directly experiencing it. So it may lead to reduced Chinese goods out in the world. It may make it a smaller market for um, their, the stuff yeah. that, yeah, our exports, their imports. Um, I mean, it's not tied up in the world finance the same way the U.S. housing market was when that crashed. Because it wasn't but, like securitized, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the Chinese debt, I mean, it's all basically owned by the government, all the money. And it's controlled by that. And they can just turn on the spigots whenever they want so 
it will be interesting to see, but that's the general gist of what's going on. Evan, do you have anything else to add? I guess I I want to know, like, is there any talk about, because it seems like this Evergrande company is on the border of being like a too big to fail type of scenario. Is there any talk about like why this company got to be so big or or like any way to kind of mitigate that in the future? That That's kind of what's sticking out to me is like, how did how the hell did they let some company hold that much real estate? Yeah, so um, an interesting feature of the modern Chinese um, style of governance is actually that um, local governments, like municipal and you know local governments, were funding their governments by land sales, not by taxes. Like they would just sell sell off some value pe- valuable pieces of land and use that to fund the government. Um, and I also have to think that it probably has something to do just kind of, you know, once you start getting to a certain level, you know, start doing a certain level of project, there are only so many companies that can handle that. And, um, but there had, you know, Xi Jinping has recently been doing a lot of antitrust stuff in China. And it's not like in the U.S. where, you know, we do antitrust suits generally because someone's anti-competitive or working as a monopoly. Xi Jinping is doing antitrust breakdowns because he doesn't want other companies to be uncheckable by the central government. Like he's essentially knocking them down so that he has, you know, can continue to maintain power over them. Yeah, that's that's where I thought it would have gone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like one of the main reasons in the, you know, reasons why they may just let it fail because Xi Jinping um, or I I should just say Xi because I keep slurring his full name. Um, Xi keeps saying that. Um, wanting to crack down on property speculation, real estate speculation. And Evergrande is a big real estate speculator, essentially, taking up all these spaces, building these massive apartment buildings that nobody has, but may someday have value. Um, So, but but then it's also like a two-sided coin because the Chinese government basically funded their entire ascent yeah. <laughs> um, to making this happen. So it's like, up, oh, you you took too much. Guess gotta <laughs> knock you down now. You built a lot of houses for people, and we appreciate that. But um, now you're on you're your too own. Too powerful. <laughs> yep. Yep. So yeah, it's it it is quite crazy how big that company is. Um, to only now just be breaching insol, but but the, uh, apparently there have been more um, complicated technical changes that made this happen. Apparently they were able to just kind of ride along for a good long while, even while maintaining a large balance of unfilled units. But I guess their recent changes were meant to kind of force their hand. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And here they are. So <laughs> hand forced. Yeah, hand forced. <laughs> you did it, G. <laughs> so that's what's going on in Chinese real estate. It could be a huge thing. We could muddle through it. 
we're not really sure because basically all the all the cards are in China's hands. Yeah, we uh, we'll just sit back and and uh, live with the effects, I guess. Yeah, if there end up being effects, yep. All right, what else we got? Yeah, so we got to mint the coin, Evan. Okay, is this like like I go to Olive Garden, take my wife out for a nice night, she's eating a lot of breadsticks, she's happy, and then they bring us the check and there's there's mints there on the check? No, no, this is like when you go to the zoo and there's that machine with a big crank and you put a penny in and then it makes something that looks like, it flattens it out and makes it look like a belt buckle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good, I yeah. like those two. This is also good. Yeah, yeah. So, what is mint the coin? Um, and largely um, higher, uh, you know, the budget. Oh my gosh, what it what is it called? The budget ceiling. The the debt ceiling. <laughs> the debt ceiling. Oh my gosh, I just blanked there hardcore. Evan, since you were able to come up with the word, what's a rough approximation of what a debt ceiling is? All right. So this is not my most knowledge of area of expertise, but let, let's try it. So the debt ceiling is basically how much debt the government is allowed to have. And so it's not about like spending. The spending is apportioned separately through budgets and stuff. But the debt ceiling is just sort of like how much debt are we allowed to kind of have outstanding so Mm -hmm. when we raise the debt ceiling we can follow through on payments for things that have already been budgeted for right so yeah exactly so what happens is uh the government passes a budget this outlines the amount of money that they intend to spend as the government now As part of a budget, um, it may require taking out debt. And since the executive branch is who carries out the laws, they are the ones who take out debt through the Treasury. The Treasury issues something called bonds that is essentially, you know, the, the government issues a bond and then somebody outside the government buys the bond for the amount of money, let's say it's $100, and then the promise is that after a certain amount of time, the government um, will buy back that bond from that person and give them a little bit of interest. So if the interest rate was 1% a year and it was a 10-year loan uh, or a bond, then you would get $110 back. And so, but what happens is, is that the Congress can set the amount of money it intends to spend, but then there's also this limit that they set, or, you know, I would argue arbitrarily called the debt ceiling, which is essentially deciding how much debt they can decide to take on as a country. Now, this becomes a problem. I mean, I think in an abstract, I think most people would like intuit some sense into a debt ceiling. Like we don't want to borrow too much money, you know, yada, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. But it becomes a real problem when Congress says, hey, spend this money. And then it gets to a certain point. And it's like, 
wait a minute, we can't borrow any more money. How are we supposed to spend this money that we're supposed to spend? <laughs> um, so the, under normal process, Congress would step in to raise the debt ceiling and also be aware that um, <laughs> the United States is only one of two countries that has a debt ceiling. What's the other one, like Trinidad or something? No. Oh, my gosh. I always get these two. It's either Belgium or the Netherlands. One of those one of those small guys. Um, but apparently they just as a routine set the debt to like three times what it is whenever they do a new budget resolution, you know, <laughs> pass a new budget. So it doesn't even like they're not doing brinksmanship. But what happens has been happening in the United States. This is not the first time this has happened. The last time this happened was in about 2013. And what has happened is the Republicans have been using this as a chip to, well, in 2013, it was used as a um, ploy to try and repeal Obamacare. And now they're just not going along with it because they really haven't stated why. They just aren't. They're <laughs> just opposing Democrats and um, they're they're not going along with it, um, which is very Dangerous, very dangerous. And why is this dangerous? Um, the United States is seen as one of the most, no, not one of the most, the safest investment in the world. Basically, um, U.S. Treasury bonds are seen as a zero risk financial investment. And they're always repaid. Yeah, it's just rock solid. Yeah, because the United States in the entire history of our country, we have never missed a payment, which would be called defaulting on our debt. We have never defaulted on our debt ever. All of it has always been repaid back. And this has led to a world where um, people are, you know, banks and institutions and individuals as well are very willing to buy U.S. debt because there are almost no other investments out in the world that are as as safe as U.S. debt. Um, just there aren't. And it's become so ubiquitous, you know, so widespread, so commonly used that the market for U.S. debt is so like so free flowing and open that if you want to sell your tre U.S. Treasury bonds, they're about as good as cash. Because if you want to sell them, you can sell them in about an instant, which is not the same for other investments. So the reason why banks like you know these Treasury bonds is because you can buy them. And if you need the cash, you can sell them right away. But if you don't, then you're still accruing interest. Mm -hmm. This is the the entire global financial system is built on the back of the U.S. Treasury bond. And Republicans are wanting to make it so that the United States cannot issue any more. Um, they're playing brinkmanship. 
we're trying it we're going towards a time where it may be the case that the United States defaults on its debt and sends a cascade through the finance world. Now, if maybe maybe you're thinking, oh, that sounds great. Stick it to the financiers. I mean, more power to you. But this just changes everything of how banks lend out money, you know, the kind of investments they make, how much money people make, just all these things. So this gets us to mint the coin. It's a kind of silly idea, but here we are in our silly times. Um, the idea is that the executive branch, President Biden, would instruct the Treasury to mint a coin worth $1 trillion <laughs> out of platinum because of legal loopholes that the Treasury can mint coins out of platinum into any denomination that they want, which is not the same case for other metals. <laughs> and because every I, I noticed every story that I talked about this would say a platinum coin. And I'm like, are they just saying that because that's a cool metal? Why don't they choose something else? <laughs> no, it has to be platinum for this legal loophole. And the Treasury Department would mint a $1 trillion coin and since it you know, was minted by the Treasury Department, it's legal tender. And they would take that $1 trillion coin and deposit it in the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has essentially unlimited ability to buy up U.S. debt. That's a thing that it does. It's a function that it, use, it uses that is the bank of last resort. Um, it's just something that ha it has the power to do. So the Treasury would deposit the $1 trillion coin within the Federal Reserve, and then the Federal Reserve would then in turn give the Treasury Department $1 trillion, and the executive branch would then be able to continue to pay for everything that it needs to do without issuing any more debt. It's weird, it's convoluted, but if you know this level of brinkmanship keeps going, it may be necessary. All right. This is just like that Simpsons episode where uh, Mr. Burns steals the trillion dollar bill and then they take it to Cuba to try to like be on the, the run from the US law enforcement and then uh -huh. uh, then, then Castro just steals it. So. <laughs> yeah oh man so, can you imagine that? that's sorry this is a heist movie waiting to happen it's like all right we have one trillion dollars of legal tender it's just in this impenetrable vault like come on you, yeah. you you would see george clooney and brad pitt 20 years ago try to steal that well the only problem with it is that trillion dollars is such a big amount of money that it's only valuable within this context. Like, I don't know. Like you could just take it to like your local McDonald's and be like, hey, you got change for a trillion. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you. You've made over a billion hamburgers. That has to be at least a trillion dollars over time. I know you guys sell fries, too. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, because there it, there is no... Uh, 
yeah, there's no bank that you can go to to withdraw a trillion dollars. <laughs> Even the Swiss banks, you can't really do that. Like they don't have enough money. And and surely if somebody stole the trillion dollar coin, the United States would be like, um, the coin is no longer valid. Um, <laughs> we we de- we decertify uh, coin X twenty three sixteen, the trillion dollar coin, <laughs> and so. But it is something amusing. It would be a very interesting bit of American history if it did happen. Um, But I hope it doesn't. (laughs) I hope we could just, yeah. Well, how close are we really to this? Like, is there anyone like with with political power who is advocating for this? Like, is this realistically going to happen or is this just a fun idea? Well, this is something that is floating along the serious thinkers we are a pro. I, I think we have something like a month or so more until we reach the debt limit. Um, so there is some time still to raise it, but this is like a break glass scenario. Like this is the this is there <laughs> is a fire only. Yeah, yeah. This is everything's on fire, and we can't make this work on its own we need to figure this you know make this happen so this is definitely an emergency measure um some other thinkers have um said that um the biden administration if it comes to the debt limit should just ignore it because they're also obligated to spend the money in the budget so that would could create an interesting um you know, legal court case, but um, we really just want to avoid defaulting on our debt because we don't have to. We never have to. We can just make more money (laughs) as a sovereign nation with our own sovereign currency. We never have to default. It's only by our own choice. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the reason why countries like Greece defaulted on their debt is because they didn't control their own money. They were using the euro. They couldn't just make more euros. Um, so um, this is totally, this would be an error that would have very high consequences. And the reasons for having it are completely unforced. Um, you know, they should just get rid of the debt ceiling to begin with. But um, who knows? Um, people <laughs> like to be debt hawks. Yeah, only sometimes, though. Only when the other guy is up there in power trying to spend yeah. the money. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's mint the coin. I hope you have uh, you have been informed and can better understand what it is now. Um, how important U.S. debt is to the world of finance and um, what we need to do to remain the the you know, the backbone of the world and, you know, financial institutions. Cause it's great because when we're in this position, um, we can basically issue as much debt as we want and people will still buy it at relative, you know, pretty low interest rates. Yeah. So, um, it's the national credit card. Yeah. And we've got the best national credit card. Stephanie, we are definitely think so. America one credit card. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. Now I'm thinking of like some boomer comic with 
you know, they're showing Biden being frivolous at like, I don't know, some clothing store because I guess clothing is frivolous. Um, and, you know, just using the American credit card or something, you know, I, I'll workshop it. I'll, I'll get an artist. I'll commission it. Okay. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah. So you got anything else, Evan, to add? No, no. I think, I think we have done our duty today. Yeah. We have had some conversation. I did a couple monologues and we've informed the people on some stuff. I, I think that's a good day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have so we done we our like job? To- Are you adequately informed? Let us know. Podcast yeah. at adequatelyinformed.com. Or wherever you get our podcast. Or I mean, wherever you see it. us. Yeah. 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 Flag us down on the street. Um, but yeah, we'd like to thank you for listening. We'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. We would like but to thank all- uh, Lindsay for helping me with my research this week. Big thanks for yeah. that. Big thanks. And I'd like to thank Noah Smith for my research this week. I pay him money for his takes. <laughs> what a world we live in. Um, Anthony Hish for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.